We open the script to the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. We'll start our reading at verse 11 and read Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So we, we will read verse 11 through verse 61. The text that we're going to focus on is verses 39 through 44, recording the mockery that Jesus suffered in the first hours on Calvary. So let us begin reading the sacred scriptures at Matthew 27, verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him, To never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his his cross. And when they were come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. 
If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Here we end our reading of the history of Good Friday. I call your attention once more to verses 39 through 44, which will be our text. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. This do in remembrance of me. With those words, the night prior, Jesus instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, the Lord's Supper. The broken bread and the poured out wine of that supper, celebrated right before Jesus' betrayal and arrest, is that visible gospel which pictures the events that would happen the very next day, the very next morning, the hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, Calvary, where the only begotten Son of God in our flesh would give himself into the hands of sinners to be crucified and slain for the remission of our sins. We gather tonight for worship in remembrance of him. In glad remembrance, though the events which we remember through the Holy Scriptures are grave events, indeed the event of the greatest evil that has ever been perpetrated on this earth, the crucifixion of the Son of God, yet we gather and we worship in remembrance of Christ that our hearts may compose themselves and find comfort and rest in these events recorded in the Scriptures. 
For on Good Friday, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the work that he was given of his Father to perform in this world. He came to bear the sins of his people. The Good Shepherd came to give his life for the sheep as a ransom for many. And that is what took place on Good Friday. Our salvation was accomplished. Life everlasting obtained for us. And thus, as we worship tonight in remembrance of him, let us worship indeed and give him thanks and praise for our eternal salvation. The scriptures take us to that Friday morning. It began early with Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. After which, under the newly risen sun, our Lord Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Led through the streets of Jerusalem, out the western gate to the hill of the skull, the site of the execution of criminals. Golgotha, which would be the altar for the Lamb of God. His body would be broken and his blood shed for his people. He was crucified that morning, likely at around nine o'clock. Jesus would hang on the cross, suffering for six hours. From nine to noon, the sun shone. But from noon to three o'clock, when the Lord Jesus died, God would blot out the light of the sun. Those last three hours of his suffering on the cross were the most intense, his deepest suffering that would draw out of him those agonized words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There hell was brought to Christ on the cross that you and I would never experience what those words mean. But we're going to focus tonight on the first three hours of Christ's suffering on the cross Events that took place yet under the light of the sun, particularly our Lord's suffering of the mockery of all who were there that surrounded his cross. For that mockery was a part of his suffering for us. And one of the amazing things that we see in our text tonight is that in that mockery, there was a temptation to our Lord. Temptation to come down from the cross. But Jesus refused to come down. And in his refusal to come down, we see his love for us. In his refusal to come down, we find our salvation. And so that's going to be our theme for the sermon tonight. Refusing to come down. Refusing to come down. First point, we look at Jesus' suffering cruel mockery. Suffering cruel mockery. Secondly, enduring final temptation. Enduring final temptation. And thirdly, finishing our salvation. Finishing our salvation. For the first hours of Jesus' suffering upon the cross... Before God blotted out the light of the sun and silenced every human tongue, our Lord Jesus was subjected to cruel mockery. He was reproached and reviled by all. You would think that the malice of Jesus' foes would have by this point been appeased. After all, they had pulled off a sham trial before the Sanhedrin. They had managed to coerce the Roman governor to sentence the innocent Christ to a criminal's death. The nails have already been driven through his sinless hands. He has been lifted up upon the cross to suffer hours of agonizing dying. And yet... The malice of Jesus' foes is far from spent. Now they gather about the foot of his cross to gloat and to jeer over their hated enemy, suffering and dying. They believe at last they have put an end to him. 
And now with their tongues, sharper than swords, and with bitter words aimed as arrows at the heart, they heap mockery upon the crucified Christ. And that's what Matthew here in our text records in great detail. Matthew records the universal mockery of the Son of God upon the crest of Calvary's hill. Everyone there mocked him. Matthew begins with the passers-by in verses 39 through 40. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Over and over again, the passers-by railed against him. We see then that Christ's crucifixion was not an isolated event taking place in some private corner of the city, but it was a very public spectacle. Golgotha was a hill outside of the western, one of the western gates of Jerusalem, and a main road in and out of the city passed by the foot of that hill. And remember that this week in Jerusalem was the week of the celebration of the Passover. There were pilgrims coming from all over Israel into Jerusalem. There was constant traffic on Good Friday morning to and from the city. There was a constantly shifting audience for this grisly scene that was unfolding upon Calvary. Bypassers. Bystanders. Many coming, many going, some stopping and staring, others quickly passing by, murmuring, but so many of them, most of them as the text says, wagging their heads, shaking their heads, reviling him. Literally the text says, blaspheming him, for they reproached God himself in the person of his son. And as they wagged their heads, they said no to this Christ. It was the no of disbelief. It was the no of scorn. Look at him there on the cross. If he is truly who he says he is, let us see him prove it. Let him come down. Let him come down from that cross. But the most constant and the fiercest of Christ's mockers were none other than the leaders of the church of that day. Verses 41 through 43 describes their cruel mockery of our Lord. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So many, all of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, at least the main ones were there. The chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders of the people, they were there. How deep these whitewashed sepulchers had sunk. It was Passover week. Are we to imagine that these men had nothing better to do during the holy week of Passover than to be at Calvary? And yet we see them here laying aside whatever sacred obligations they had as leaders of the church of that day during the week of Passover so that they could stand at the foot of the cross of the crucified Christ and revile him. That's where their hearts were so full of malice and hatred yet that they wished to spend their day reviling the Christ upon the cross so as to increase his suffering and gratify their malice. This cruel mockery of the passers-by and of the leaders of the church that day, of pilgrim, scribe, Pharisee, priest, and elder alike, this cruel mockery was contagious. Everyone else participated. Everyone else joined in. The hardened Roman soldiers. They were used to this grisly work of executing criminals. And so they joined in, if only for sport. We turn to another gospel account, Luke, Luke 23, verses 36 through 37. We read this, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. The soldiers standing around the foot of the cross revile him as well. 
And even the criminals, even the thieves, those crucified on either side of Jesus, use their precious breath to mock Christ. Verse 44 of our text, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now we know from Luke 23 that by a wonder work of God's grace in the heart of one of these thieves, he would be converted and would cease his mocking words and instead bring that beautiful request before Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. But at the first, they both mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other was particularly vicious in his mocking of the Lord Jesus Christ as we read in Luke 23 verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. A universal mockery of the Son of God. Now, let's look a little more closely at the words themselves. The words of cruel mockery themselves. And as we do so, we will notice that there's a common thread through all of these words. All of this mockery that was heaped upon the crucified Christ focused on Jesus' identity as the Son of God. His identity as the King of Israel, the promised Messiah. And focused upon his power as the Savior. The mockers taunt him. Every one of them taunt him. If you are who you say you are, prove it by coming down from that cross. The mockers or the passers-by had said, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. Show thy power by coming down from the cross. They used Jesus' own words against him. These words had made quite an impression upon the people. Jesus had spoken those words in John 2 verse 19, early in his ministry, after his first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. You recall that history, how the Jews had come to Jesus and they had asked for a sign to verify the authority by which he did these things. And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews were perplexed. The Jews were angry. They were perplexed. This temple took decades to build and you say you are going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days? They took him literally, not understanding, as John 2 verse 21 says, that he spoke of the temple of his body. And so remembering these words, the passers-by rail against him using these words. If you have such great power, O thou who would destroy the temple and rear it up in three days again, show that power, exercise that power, save yourself. Unaware that Jesus was at this very moment fulfilling those words. For the temple of his body would be destroyed for the salvation of his people. And in three days, he would rear it up again. These words had been twisted over and over by the Jews. The Jewish leaders had used them against Jesus at his illegal trial before the Sanhedrin the previous night when false witnesses were brought in to accuse him. And those false witnesses had used these words against him in order to portray Jesus as some impious fellow who sought the destruction of Israel's most holy site, the very sanctuary of God. Now they're thrown in our Lord's teeth. You're the son of God. Come down from the cross. Prove it thereby. The leaders of the church, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the chief priests, take this taunting mockery further. Hear the scorn in their voices. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Here they mock 
the idea of Jesus as the Savior. They mock his entire ministry as if the cross now disproves all of those miracles of healing that he had performed, all of the saving acts that he had brought to the people to whom he ministered, all of those miracles which were visible words picturing his power to save the sin-sick soul. It was all a fraud. They say, look at him. Supposedly he saved others, and now he's on a cross. He saved others, but he can't save himself. The fact that he's on a cross shows he never really saved anyone. You're not a savior. They go on then to mock Jesus' claim to be the Messiah and King. As their angry eyes look up to that superscription that Pilate had placed above Jesus' head, that superscription which so infuriated them because it read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. There was no accusation there as was the custom. That's what the superscription was supposed to state. The identity of the criminal and the crime for which they are being executed. But Jesus simply says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, and that's precisely what he was being slain for, for who he was. He was the Christ of God. He was the King of Israel, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but instead affixed him to the cross. So now the Jewish leaders make a mockery of it all. If you're the King of Israel, prove it. What kind of king? lets himself be subjected to a horrible, shameful, excruciating death like a criminal on a Roman cross. If you're the Messiah King, you would come and you would send the Romans away. You would establish David's kingdom in Jerusalem, but that's not what you have done. Now look at you. You're on a cross. You're not a king. You're not the king. And then, at last, these men revile Jesus' own relationship with his father. Verse 43. He trusted in God. There, they bring up Jesus' perfect piety, his perfect faithfulness to his father, displayed throughout his life in ministry, and they make a blasphemous mockery of it. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now, if God will have him. That is, if God even wants him. After all, he said he's the son of God. But now look at him. He's on a cross. He's on a cross. What good did trusting your father do you? You're on a cross. You claim to be the son of God. If your father approves you, surely he will rescue you. Surely he will not leave you on a Roman cross. Stay on that cross and it only proves God has forsaken you, rejected, abandoned, disowned by your father. And there was a hint of truth in those words, though not what the scribes and Pharisees meant by it, because as Christ was suffering on the cross, he was experiencing the depths of what hell is, which is God-forsakenness. The scribes and the Pharisees We're pointing to the cross and saying, as long as you are on this cross, that is proof you are not who you say you are. If you are the Son of God, come down. Now, all of this cruel mockery heaped upon Jesus, we must understand, this is part of of his atoning suffering on our behalf. This is part of the work he came to do to save us from our sins. When we come to Calvary and through the pages of Scripture, look upon this dreadful scene, easily the physical sufferings of Christ loom in the forefront of our minds, but the mental, the emotional, the spiritual suffering that Jesus was subjected to through this mockery, through this rejection, through this reproach, was a part of his suffering just as intense. You think about it. 
Think about the pain that is caused when you are mocked and ridiculed unjustly, unfairly. When accusations are brought against you which are utterly contrary to truth, that pierces the heart like a knife. It's on the cross that Jesus submits himself here to the cruelest of cutting words. He is stripped, he is shamefully exposed before the leering eyes of his enemies. Jesus' suffering was not only in that he laid aside the divine honors which are rightfully his when he became incarnate, took upon our flesh. Yes, that was part of his humiliation. That was part of his suffering. He entered into all of the infirmities that we mortal men are afflicted with. But his suffering was also this. That he silently bore the undeserved reproach and indignity heaped upon him by the worst and most unworthy of men. Jesus, the perfect, righteous Son of God, worthy of all honor and praise, is mocked and reproached in this way and is numbered among the transgressors. That's suffering. And not just numbered among any transgressors, but the worst of transgressors. And as verse 44 of our text shows us, he is even ridiculed and reproached by the worst of transgressors, the thieves as well, cast it in his teeth. Even these criminals use their precious last breath to mock the Christ. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, is here fulfilled. That prophetic utterance of David in Psalm 22, 6-8. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, unbeknownst to themselves in their mockery of Christ, in the flowing out of their malice, they quote those words of the psalm. As they heap reproach upon the head of the greater son of David. Suffering. For you and for me, and for all God's people who believe on his name. For us, beloved, who deservedly would be reckoned among the transgressors. For that is what we are by nature. We are those who are worthy of shame and reproach. And yet he comes and he suffers in our place for us to bear away the reproach and the shame of our sins. He came to die as a criminal in the place of those who are criminals before God. Our sins against God's most high majesty make us worthy of eternal abasement, shame, and punishment. But the cross, Christ, our representative, our substitute, our savior, our sin bearer, the servant of Jehovah, takes it all upon himself to deliver us from it. That's the wonder of the cross. The amazing cross. The Jews of the day, The leaders of the church stumbled at the foolishness of the cross. Amazingly, those that are saved at Calvary. One of the thieves in the centurion and a couple Roman soldiers who at the end of all that they saw and heard could say nothing but this truly is the Son of God. Jesus lays down his life for us. Takes the shame. Takes the reproach. Takes the mockery to deliver us from our sins. But now, 
we want to see that there's something more to this cruel mockery of our Savior. Embedded in the mocking taunts is one final great temptation of the Lord. As we've read through all of these mocking taunts of the various persons and groups that reviled Christ at Calvary, perhaps we noticed that certain words are common in almost all of the taunts and the mockery. If thou be the Son of God, prove it through the exercise of thy power to save yourself. To come down from that cross. If you are the son of God. Show it by coming down from the cross. Now. Those words sound eerily familiar. Do they not? If thou be the son of God. The mockers. Unbeknownst to themselves. Took Satan's own words. In their mouths. You go all the way back to the gospel of to the beginning of the gospel of Matthew to the start of Jesus ministry in Matthew 4 after Jesus baptism he goes out into the wilderness he has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and the tempter comes to him and in Matthew 4 verse 3 Satan says if thou be the son of god command that these stones be made bread You see, behind the sneering faces, behind the mocking voices, embedded in the taunting words, Satan, the tempter, is whispering in the ear of Jesus Christ. Satan, who tried to derail Christ from the messianic work he was called to perform. He had tried to do that at the very beginning of our Lord's ministry. He has striven to do that throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Now, at the end, now, at Jesus' last great act, fulfilling the work that his father gave him to do, we have Satan's last great temptation, his final effort to thwart the work of God by tempting the Christ to disobey his father and turn from the way appointed for him and thus disqualify himself from being that one mediator of the covenant, that one perfect savior who is able to save God's people from their sins. That's really what's going on here as all of the people around the cross mock Jesus Christ. Satan is doing his best. Satan has stirred up all of these wicked hearts to heap upon the Lord his greatest temptation yet. Come down from the cross. Come down. Come down. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. You have the power. Save yourself. Come down. Satan whispers through every one of these mocking words hurled at Christ for three hours before God blots out the sun and silences their tongues. Come down. There's another way. There's another way to glory without the cross, without the suffering. There's another way in which you won't have to drink that cup that the Father will give you in the darkness a few hours from now. There's another way. Escape the pain. Escape the suffering. Escape the shame. Come down from the cross. Look at all of these mockers around you. You can silence their tongues with one act of your power. Come down from the cross. Vindicate your name. Silence the reviling multitudes. Come down from the cross. So much easier. Save yourself. Save yourself and show your power. Establish your kingdom that way. Not your father's way. My 
way. And we're back to the devil's third temptation at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Simply bow before me and I will give you all. Think of how tempting that would have been. Think of how tempting it was after Jesus had fasted for 40 days when Satan said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. How much more tempting when Satan comes to Jesus in his agony. That great opportunist that Satan is, he always comes and launches his fiercest temptation. When we're most vulnerable, he comes to Jesus in his agony and says, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Our Savior was perfect. Perfectly sinless, and yet could be tempted. He could feel the tug of that temptation in his flesh. And how this temptation must have awakened a certain yearning, even in that perfect flesh of our Savior, to come down, to end the suffering. The wonderful Good Friday truth of the text is that Jesus refuses to come down He refuses to come down from the cross. He refuses to save himself. He stays. He stays up on the cross. Not because he is forced to. Not because he is subject to a power beyond his ability to handle. No man takes his life from him. No power takes his life from him. Jesus has power to lay down his life and to take it up again. Jesus refuses to come down. And it is the exercise of his almighty power that keeps him on the cross. For us and for our salvation. The unchangeable unwavering love of Christ for his heavenly father, which was perfect, would not budge in the face of this temptation. Jesus would not deviate a hair's breadth from the way marked out for him by his father. Though that way led to the cross, and though on the cross there would be that cup of the fullness of God's wrath, which he must drink to the last drop for his people, he would not turn from that way he refused to come down he endured he overcame this last great temptation and the text shows us that in a striking way it shows us by Jesus silence the text records All of the mockery, all of the taunts, all of the scorn heaped upon him verse after verse And embedded in all of that is the devil's great temptation. And we read of Jesus doing nothing. Saying nothing. With humble silence. He answered not in turn. He bore the contradiction of sinners. When reviled, he reviled not again. And he did not come down. He did not come down. From the cross. But willed. With his holy will. To remain there. Upon that cross. Even though he knew what was coming. Those three hours of darkness. He remained on that cross. And took the cup. And drained it. For us. He gave ear to the devil no more at the end of his life than he did at the beginning of his ministry. And his silence in the text of the scripture is a resounding no that echoes throughout history. No, Christ refused to come down from the cross. But remained and performed the will of Of his father. He is obedient. Perfectly obedient. Even unto the death of the cross. He denies himself to the uttermost. 
that he might give himself to the uttermost for his people and for the glory of his father. He refused to come down and triumphed over temptation. Refusing to come down, triumphing over temptation, he finished your salvation and mine. By refusing to come down from the cross, Jesus accomplished salvation and secured the greatest blessing of his people, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, life everlasting for us. If he had come down, what would have become of us? What would have become of God's plan of redemption? If Christ had come down from the cross, it would have all been over. And we would be eternally undone. The devil would have won. For Jesus' work, the work embedded in his name, Jehovah's salvation, would be a work left undone, unfinished, of no effect. Our sins would yet be unpaid for. We would yet be unreconciled to God. God's wrath would remain yet unappeased. His justice unsatisfied. The cup still full and there for each and every one of us to drink. And that cup of blessing which runneth over would not be ours. If Jesus had come down, the Father's will would be unfulfilled and there would be no, it is finished on the pages of Scripture to resound through the ages to our comfort. If Jesus had come down, we would go down, down into the grave and through the grave into hell. But Jesus did not come down. Jesus stayed up on the cross so that he might lift us up. To heavenly glory. That's the gospel of Good Friday, beloved. That's the gospel of this text. Jesus refused to come down. And in refusing to come down in the most marvelous way, he overturns all of these words of his mockers and fulfills their true significance. Let's see that. The passers-by. Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Save thyself. If you have that power to destroy the temple and build it in three days, prove it by coming down. By staying on the cross, Jesus fulfilled those words. For on the cross, he gave the temple to be destroyed. The temple of his body. For Jesus ultimately is the temple of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And the temple was the Old Testament picture for God's presence with his people. In Jesus' death on the cross, he gives the temple to be destroyed For the salvation of his people. And on the cross, even as his body is destroyed, Jesus is building the temple. He's building the temple that is his mystical body, the church. The gathering of all of his people whose sins will be forgiven. Whose souls and life will be saved through his atoning sacrifice. As he dies on the cross, as the temple is destroyed, he is in fact building the true temple. He is establishing the kingdom of God. He is establishing the covenant fellowship of God with his people based upon his work. He is making himself that chief cornerstone upon which the house of God will be built. And in three days, just as he said, he would rear that temple up again. His own glorious resurrection. No. Not by saving himself would his power be shown, but by giving himself. And in giving himself, 
not coming down. These words are fulfilled. He saved others. The leaders of the Jews mock. He saved others himself he cannot save. No. No. He will not save himself. Precisely because he will save others. By refusing to come down. And by staying upon that cross. That is how he saves his people from their sins. For he came to give his life as a ransom for many. If he had saved himself, he would not have been able to save any other. But because he saved not himself, he has saved everyone that the Father has given him. Every last one of his sheep from his hand, none can ever pluck them. He saved not himself because he was busy saving others. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. They mock. No. For by refusing to come down from the cross, he in fact shows himself to be the king. The king, the Messiah who conquers. For it is by staying on the cross that he endures that last temptation of the old dragon, Satan. It is by staying on the cross and refusing to come down that Satan's head is crushed. It is by staying on the cross that he spoils principalities and powers and triumphs over them. It is by refusing to come down from the cross that with kingly power he puts death to death by his own death. There's the wonder of God's power made manifest. God's power is power so often made perfect in weakness. And when it appears that Jesus is utterly in the power of his enemies, in reality they are utterly in his power. The mighty conquering king. He trusted in God, they mock. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For three hours, God will not have him. God would forsake his son on account of our sins. Precisely to deliver us. To deliver us from our sins so that we may never be forsaken of him. That we might be called the sons and the daughters of God. He is here rejected. That we may never be rejected. And so it is by his refusing to come down. And his staying on the cross. That the glory of his sonship is in fact revealed. As the firstborn among many brethren. Who brings many sons and daughters to glory. The gospel of Good Friday. Believe this gospel beloved. Let it comfort your hearts. Jesus refused to come down. So that God will never refuse you. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for this word of the scriptures. Setting before us the power, the glory, the wonder, the comfort of the cross. Bind this word to our hearts that it may indeed console us and lift our hearts with joy that we may sing and rejoice in what we have through Christ. We thank thee for him and for his cross. Amen.